Chapter 14 of My Airships by Alberto Santos Dumont. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 14 The Building of My Number 6. On the very evening of my fall to the roof of the Trocadero Hotels, I gave out the specifications of a Santos Dumont number six, and after twenty-two days of continuous labor, it was finished and inflated. The new balloon had the shape of an elongated ellipsoid, see figure ten, thirty-three meters, or one hundred ten feet by its great axis, and six meters, or twenty feet, by its small axis terminated fore and aft by cones. I now gave more care than ever to the devices on which I depended to maintain the balloon's rigidity of form. I had fallen to the roof of the Trocadero hotels by the fault of the smallest and most insignificant-looking piece of mechanism of the entire system, a weakened valve that let out the balloon's hydrogen. In very much the same way, the fall of the first of all my airships had been occasioned by the failure of a little air pump. In all my constructions, except the big-bellied balloon of the number three, I had depended much on the interior compensating air balloon. See figure five on page 119, fed by air pump or rotary ventilator. Sewed like a closed patch pocket to the inside bottom of the great balloon, this compensating air balloon would remain flat and empty so long as the great balloon remained distended with gas. Then, as hydrogen might be condensed from time to time by changes of altitude and temperature, the air pump, or ventilator worked by the motor, would begin to fill the compensating air balloon, make it take up more room inside the great balloon, and so keep the latter distended. Inside the balloon of my number six, I now sewed such a compensating balloon, capable of holding 60 cubic meters, or 2,118 cubic feet. The ventilator that was to feed it formed practically a part of the motor itself. Revolving continually while the motor worked, it would serve air continually to the compensating balloon whether or not the latter would be able to hold it. What air it could not hold would escape through a comparatively weak valve, air valve, figure 10, communicating with the outer atmosphere through the bottom of the air balloon, which was also the bottom of the great outer balloon. To relieve the great balloon of its dilated hydrogen when necessary, I supplied it with two of the best valves I could make. See gas valves, figure 10. These also communicated with the outer atmosphere. Imagine now that after a certain condensation of my hydrogen, 
the interior compensating balloon should have filled up in part with air from the ventilator and so maintained the form of the great balloon rigid. Shortly after, by a change of temperature or altitude, the hydrogen would begin to dilate again. Something would have to give way or the balloon would burst in a cold explosion. What ought to give way first? Evidently, the weaker air valve. See air valve, figure 10. Letting out part or all of the air in the interior balloon, it would relieve the tension of the swelling hydrogen, and only afterwards, should this not be sufficient, would the stronger gas valves, figure 10, let out precious hydrogen. All three valves were automatic, opening outward on a given pressure from within. One of the hypotheses to account for the terrible accident to the unhappy Severos dirigible packs is concerned with this all-important problem of valves. The packs, as originally constructed, had two. Monsieur Severo, who was not a practical aeronaut, stopped up one of them with wax before starting on his first and last voyage. In view of the decreasing pressure of the atmosphere as one goes higher, the ascent of a dirigible should always be slow and never great for gas will expand on the rise of a few yards. It is quite different from the case of a spherical balloon, which has no interior pressure to withstand. A dirigible whose envelope is distended by great pressure depends on its valves not to burst. With one of its valves stopped with wax, the packs was allowed to shoot up from the earth, and immediately its occupants seemed to have lost their heads. Instead of checking their rapid rise, one of them threw out ballast, a handful of which will send up a great spherical balloon perceptibly. The mechanician of Severo is said to have been last seen throwing out a whole bag in his excitement. Up shot the packs, higher and higher, and the expansion, the explosion, and the awful fall came as a chain of consequences. The tonnage of my new balloon was 630 cubic meters, or 22,239 cubic feet, affording an absolute lifting power of 690 kilograms, or 1,518 pounds. But the increased weight of the new motor and machinery, nevertheless, put my disposable ballast at 110 kilograms, or 242 pounds. It was a four-cylinder motor of 12 horsepower, cooled automatically by the circulation of water round the top of the piston, coulasse. 
While the water cooler brought extra weight, I was glad to have it, for the arrangement would permit me to utilize, without fear of overheating or jamming en route, the full power of the motor, which was able to communicate to the propeller a traction effort of 66 kilograms, or 145 pounds. My daily practice with the new airship ended, 6th September 1901, in a slight accident. The balloon was reinflated by the 15th of September, but four days later it crashed against a tree in making a too sudden turn. Such accidents I have always taken philosophically, looking on them as a kind of insurance against more terrible ones. Were I to give a single word of caution to all dirigible balloonists, it would be, <laughs> keep close to the earth. The place of the airship is not in high altitudes, and it is better to catch in the tops of trees, as I used to do in the Bois de Boulogne, than to risk the perils of the upper air without the slightest practical advantage. End of chapter 14